0: Welcome to the Defender Bible Study, a weekly encouragement to equip the body of Christ through the study of scripture and prayer to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children around the world. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services where we believe that defending the fatherless begins by being rooted in God's word. It's Monday, August the 9th, 2021, And I'm coming to you from Birmingham, Alabama. Well, today we are continuing our study on the book of Romans. And specifically, we will be looking at Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. And really the theme that we see in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, is that the whole world is accountable to God. Paul is seeking here to bring a guilty verdict upon all humanity in Romans 3, 1 through 20. So let's read the passage. And and actually, we're going to back up just a little bit, two verses into chapter 2 and look at Romans chapter 2, verse 28 through Romans chapter 3, verse 20, because I think it gives us a fuller context and a reminder of what Paul is telling this church there in Rome. So Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, though you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged, but if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? I speak in a human way, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged them all. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is a a weighty, weighty message. John Piper says this is an unpopular message. And understandably, he says, it is no more popular than the doctor's words, your tumor is malignant, but it's vastly more helpful. You see, when someone says your tumor is malignant, that may or may not be hopeful news because the doctor may or may not have a cure for your cancer. But you are under the power of sin and a child of wrath always has a cure. This is what the book of Romans and what Christianity and the Bible are all about. You see, beloved, This shows us how sinfully sick we are, but we'll see in the future. We'll see as we continue the study of Romans in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, it shows us the good, beautiful news that there is a cure. There is justification that you can become righteous through the character of God. But as we look at the first part of chapter 3, we actually see four questions that are posed about God's character. It's almost like Paul does a little Q&A for the church here at Rome to help them have these questions that he's been he's been hearing from the church. And he, he kind of has this little Q&A. Well, well, this is a question you have, and, and here's the answer. So four quick questions about God's character on Paul's Q&A of the church at Rome. The first was, was God being true by calling the Jews his chosen people? Verse 28, he he brings this in, you know, for no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly or is circumcision outward and physical, but as a Jew is one inwardly. And then verse one, he says, then what advantage has a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? Like God said the Jews were his chosen people. Was he true in calling them that? If you're saying that they stand up as the same as Gentiles? But here's what we have to see. Israel was entrusted with God's law and his promises. That's what verse two says. They have the very oracles of God. He revealed his presence to them through the tabernacle, through picking up his presence and traveling with the tabernacle. He showered provision on them with manna and quail in the wilderness. God's chosen people had a front row seat to the unfolding plans of God to redeem humanity from the effects of sin. However, being God's chosen people didn't exclude them from the effects of sin, nor did it save them. Verse 9 tells us Jews are no better off because they are Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. The Jews have, therefore, the promises of Scripture. They have God's direct revelation of who he is. They have the promises given to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob regarding the character of God and the coming of the Messiah. This, however, did not save them. You see, you could have the word of God, but it doesn't make a difference if you do not believe the word and live by the word. Jesus said this to the Jewish leaders in John chapter five, verses 39 through 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You can have the winning lottery ticket, But if you never cash it in, it doesn't do you much good. And beloved, we have God's word. We live on this side of the cross. So the question to us is, are we making the gospel and the glory of God known? And are we staking our lives on this precious word? Oh, brothers and sisters, beloved, what we must understand is that we must stake our word, our lives on this word. We must make Jesus known. We have a front row seat today as his children to his glory. We need to make him known. And then the second question in Paul's Romans FAQ that he puts out about God's character is this, is God's faithfulness contingent on our faithfulness? Huh. Verses three through four, he says, what if someone were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And then Paul says, absolutely not. God's faithfulness is not contingent on anything, but on his character and his character alone. Romans 9 verse 6 says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. God is always faithful. His word never fails. He never, he never bounces checks. He never doesn't get go forward on a promise. Romans 3, 4, it says, let God be true, though everyone else were a liar. Man's confession, nor his response to God, determine the Lord's faithfulness. Any man who calls God unfaithful is a liar. God is truth. He is faithful. He's just to punish those who fail to acknowledge him and receive him as Lord of lords and King of kings. David, in his sin, acknowledges that God's judgment is blameless Psalm 51, three through four, David says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me and against you, you only God have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Take comfort, beloved, in knowing that God is entirely true and that you can fully trust him. May we lead others to our lives, our witness and our word to trust the same. And then the third question in Paul's Romans FAQ is this about God's character. If grace comes as a result of our unrighteousness, is God unfaithful to punish? In other words, if, if God is, is faithful and he gives this grace because of we're so unrighteous, how can he punish? Huh. Verses 5-6 through six tell us, If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? He says, I speak in a human way. And then he answers, which is the answer, by no means. For then how would God judge the world? God is absolutely faithful both in his mercy and in his punishment. God will judge the world in perfect righteousness. And the truth of the matter is our question shouldn't be, is God unfaithful to punish? But how in the world does God ever show grace? And we see and we'll see in chapter three that we are so sinfully sick. This world is so corrupt. Our hearts are so corrupt and evil. How in the world could God even begin to have any grace for even one person? We asked the wrong question. God is faithful. God is just to punish. The question is, how in the world could he ever show the grace to even one unrighteous person? You know, today's culture has a huge issue with accountability. Culture seeks to make everyone a victim of their circumstances and thus accountable for nothing. Certainly in a sinful and fallen world, there are those who are hurt and victimized in heinous ways. However, the point we need to understand is that while you may be innocent when a crime is perpetrated against you, we are never innocent when standing bare before a holy God. We deserve wrath punishment and separation. And it's only by God's extravagant grace that He gives those who trust Him such extravagant love and mercy. A few instances of God's holy and righteous punishment First, we see when Abraham was interceding on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, he says in Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, far be it from me to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And this is where Abraham is, is pleading with God to save Sodom. He goes from, will you, pl- will you save it for the sake of 50? Will you save it for the sake of 45, for 40, for 30, to 20, to 10? And then finally we get the picture. Abraham realizes as he's bargaining and talking to God, there are none that are righteous. There's not a single righteous person. And so God is just in his judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. David in Psalm 96, he sings a song to God. And this is after rescuing the ark of God from the presence of the Philistines. And he ascribes worship to God, not because he's rescued this ark, but because God is just to judge. Psalm 96, verse 9 says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Yahweh reigns. Yes, the Lord, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the fields exult and everything in it. Why? Let all the trees in the forest sing for joy. Why? Because Yahweh, he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. David sang a song to God because of his faithful judgment, his righteous judgment. God is right to judge. And then the prophet Joel says in his prophecy of the end times that a righteous king will judge all of the nations. He says, hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all of the surrounding nations. Beloveds, God's judgment is real and it will be just and righteous when it comes. Oh, But until that day... We must preach the gospel to those who are perishing and daily to ourselves. And the fourth and final question that we see posed here in Paul's Romans FAQ on God's character is should we no longer care about holiness since God is merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? Verse seven, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, and their condemnation is just. So Paul asked that question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin, Romans 6, 1 through 2, so that grace may abound? Paul says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You see, God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But willful disobedience is not joyful submission to Christ. Grace and the gospel do not give us a license to sin. No, they give us freedom to pursue holiness in Christ. We come to Christ to be more like Christ, not more like the sinful world. We must seek Christ Paul says it like this in Ephesians, I'm sorry, Colossians chapter three, verses one through six. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are of the earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. God's character and righteousness cause us to desire to be more Christ like, not less. So, next, Paul moves in to present the basis of the gospel. He starts with putting the world on trial before a holy God. He gives an accusation, presents the evidence, and then slams down the verdict before he gives the beautiful hope and extravagant grace of God that we see in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 26. So first we see the accusation in verse 9. And the accusation is this, that all humanity is under accusation before a holy God because we are all under sin. As we saw before, Jews are God's chosen people, but that doesn't save them or give them an excused obedience from the accusation. We are accused. We are under sin before a holy God. But then Paul moves to the evidence. And in verses 10 through 18, he states the evidence against humanity. Sin is universal. And it affects every part of our lives. No one is acceptable before God. All stand condemned. Without God's common grace, the world would be in total anarchy. It's because of God's goodness to sinful humanity that things are not spinning completely out of control. God is so good, so kind, and so loving that he provides order and common grace to give us space to repent and seek after him. Huh? It is because of God's goodness that he gives us that space to find him, to repent and to seek after him. So Paul here in verses 10 to 18, he lists 14 sins, which bring forth irrefutable evidence that we are under sin. As we look at these, let's examine our own hearts and lives to see sin's control and our daily need for the grace of Christ. So I'll put this list into three categories. First, our temperament, right? What, what, what are we like? How do people describe us? Number two, our talk. What comes out of our mouth? And the number three, our walk, our action. So first, our temperament. Six of those sins kind of fall under our temperament. How would people describe the way we act? Number one, sin says we're unrighteous. Paul quotes from Ecclesiastes 7.20 when he says, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one can claim to be without sin, nor can they claim to have complete, pure motives. We're unrighteous. But the second is we lack understanding. It says no one understands. We're ignorant. Unrepentant people can have a lot of knowledge but lack true wisdom. James, in his letter to the church, speaks about wisdom a lot and that wisdom begins at the knowledge of God. Beloved, how many times do we live or act or make decisions without considering the Lord? How many times do we even pretend that he doesn't exist? Do we not even understand his control? James 3.13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of his wisdom. But then third, we see that no one seeks God. We're rebellious. We're not seeking God. In Romans 1.18, Paul said, There is no fear of God before their eyes. We renounce and deny God and fall into all types of evil. By nature, we are rebels. It is only because of God's grace that we seek after him. Then fourth, it says all have turned aside. We're all wayward. We've turned aside. We naturally turn away from God and consistently choose the wrong way. And then the fifth thing about our temperament is we're worthless. It says together they have become worthless. We have so denied Christ that we truly can do nothing. In John's gospel in chapter 15, verses 4 through 5, Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. One of the many reasons we follow Jesus is because we want to give our lives for something that truly matters. And then sixth, no one, no one does good. Not even one. There's total depravity. Paul says, No one does good, not even one. No one measures up or can make it on their own. All of humanity need the grace of God. Huh. Brothers and sisters, we're only six through the total of the 14, but the next four talk about our talk. That our words reveal the true condition of our heart. Matthew 12, 34 says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The first thing that Paul says is their throat are an open grave. Our throats are open graves. We cover graves out of respect because we don't want people to see the destruction and the decay. And Paul is saying that our destructive and corrupt words testify that we are spiritually dead. We are spiritually dead because of our words. Second thing we see about our talk is that lying tongues of deceit, verse 13, instead of being truthful and dedicated to the truth, we lie and are unrepentant of our lies. With our mouths, we, we tarnish the reputation of others. And with our mouths, we utter false testimony, which has literally led people to slaughter. We're too quick to use our words to exalt ourselves untruthfully and to shred others. But then, if you like snakes, this one's for you. It says, the venom of asps is under their lips. We're poisonous words. Snakes, the venom of snakes are our words. Psalm 143 says, They make their tongue sharp as a serpent, and under their lips is the venom of asps. Jesus called the religious leaders a brood of vipers because they were using their words to condemn and to poison others, not to encourage and point to the Messiah. Are our mouths exalting Christ? Or are our mouths inflicting great harm and causing ultimately Jesus' harm? Fourth about our talk, We see that says that their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. We have foul mouths. We may not have a problem with four letter words, but the intent of foul speech is alive and well in our hearts and minds. We spew hatred and bitterness whenever we are wronged and we demand grace and forgiveness whenever we have sinned. Our mouth is inconsistent at best and an open sewer at worst. When we sin with our words against a brother or sister, we need to humbly apologize and seek reconciliation. But the final four of the 14 describe our way of life, our walk. And it basically says what we do is corrupt. The first thing we see is their feet are swift to shed blood. We're murderous. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verses 21 through 22, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders is liable for judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Without God's common grace, which provides rules, laws, government, family, prison, and the like, our world would run even more rampant with physical murder. What is constraining your active anger? But then second, we see it says that in their paths are ruin and misery. Pain and misery producing are our actions. Our sin always leaves a trail of misery, pain, and heartache. Then it says that the way of peace they have not known were haters of peace. Sin leads to restlessness and the lack of contentment. Sin never leads to peace, but a life of righteousness in Christ brings an overabundance of peace and joy. The world likes to categorize sin as freedom, happiness, and fun. But sin isn't fine. It always leads to misery, pain, and death. And then fourth, in the 14th, we see there's no fear of God before their eyes. We do not tremble at God's presence. This absence of fear for God leads to sin, foolishness, and rebellion. And as we look at these 14 sins that Paul unfolds. It proves that there's not one who is righteous. There's no one who can stand without being condemned. And there is not a religious or moral prescription to fix this. It is an understanding sin that we come face to face with our individual, corporate, and worldwide need for a savior and for a substitute to stand in our place before God. We are all marked with sin. In Romans three ten through 18, that presents the evidence against all humanity. And this is a dark list, but it highlights so clearly the beauty of the gospel found in the rest of the chapter. The gospel is so much more glorious when we realize how hopelessly lost we are. So this brings us to the undeniable slam dunk, no way to appeal verdict, guilty. The verdict is so locked solid that we are guilty that the only appropriate response is silence. Verse 20 tells us that we are without excuse because the law has judged us as lawbreakers. There's no excuse, no way to justify except through Christ Jesus. We are incapable to keep the law on our own and we are desperate without intervention. Our righteousness cannot be earned. And it's even worse than we think when we put in perspective the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says you can sanitize your outward actions that others see, but you cannot excuse or hide the sin in your own heart against a holy God. And this verdict, guilty, is so strong and so heavy that it sets us up beautifully for some of the most gentle and nourishing words in Romans 3:21 through 26. You see, in Romans chapter 1, 18 through what we just read, Romans 3:20, we see that we are stripped and bare before the Lord without excuse. But as we see, as we continue our study in Romans 3, 21 through 26, we are clothed in the perfect, blameless and righteous life of Christ. We have seen that sin is much worse and more comprehensive than anyone wants to believe. But we will see just how sweet and amazing Jesus is to the desperate sinner like me. And we must preach this gospel because it is the power of God into salvation. And this gospel can change and reorient anyone. For the woman in crisis who feels alone as though she has failed, there is a father who will clothe her, restore her purity, and make her new. For the child who is wayward and feels a stranger in their family, there is a God that rescues with extravagant love, who reminds us that we can all stand because of his helping us to belong in his family. Beloved, we need this gospel. Our world desperately needs this gospel. And the orphan, vulnerable family, and vulnerable woman needs this gospel. Well, thanks for joining us for the Defender Bible Study. Today, we are praying for Lifeline partners around the world. We're praying for our unadopted and international partners. We're also praying for followers of Christ to continue growing daily in their faith, in the word, as they draw near to the Lord. We're praying for our domestic partners, pregnancy centers, churches, foster care partners, DHR. We're praying for our church partners. We're praying for government partners. We're praying for all of our other ministry partners. So join us as we pray. Father God, we pray for our international and unadopted and adoption partners. We pray for wisdom, for faithfulness, and endurance. We pray for protection over their time with their families. We pray that their hearts would be pure and that they'll always choose integrity. And Lord, we pray for those who do not know Christ that will come in contact with our partners. We pray that our partners would have the opportunity to share the gospel with them. And that God would open up the hearts and the minds of the unbelievers. We pray that our partners would continue to pursue Christ daily, spending time in his word and drawing near to the Lord. We pray for our domestic partners, for the pregnancy centers that serve women each and every day, pointing them to life. We pray for our churches here domestically that are uh, wrapping around foster parents or caring for uh, adoptive parents or caring for children in foster care. Pray for our foster care partners who are loving on and caring for those who are in foster care. We pray for Child Protective Services and for DHR and DHS in all the states and, and counties that they would have wisdom, that they would have endurance, and then ultimately the church would wrap around them to show them the gospel. For our government partners, we pray for opportunities that we could be heard by local, state, and federal government officials. We pray for them to recognize the value of the church and gospel driven ministries. We pray that we would have favor in these relationships and opportunities to display and manifest the gospel to those serving in government roles. For other ministry partners, we pray that they would stand firm in biblical convictions. We pray that they would have opportunities to partner with like-minded ministries and organizations. Lord, would we shepherd those opportunities well? Would there be a spirit of unity that would be prevalent among the body of Christ as we serve you and make you known? God, thank you for the opportunity as your children to partner with others. Thank you that you didn't put us on an island to work alone. You gave us other brothers and sisters in order to do this ministry together and to serve you with excellence and to make your gospel known. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We ask this in your holy, righteous, and awesome name, the name of Jesus.